We all have regrets. One of mine is that I actually watched the show Lost. (laughs) Judging by that hollow look that just came across some of your faces, you too know that regret. How you allowed yourself to be so taken advantage of and strung along and betrayed. I remember watching the final episode with Melissa and saying, what just happened? That's it. That didn't even make sense. My God, what have I done? Why am I alive? What is the purpose of life? Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I actually really liked it. Friend, is there no light in you? I mean, for three seasons, yes, the first three seasons, it was amazing. The action, the story, the plot, it was all so captivating. But then in season four, we hit that rough patch. Did we not comfort ourselves thinking that they're going to get this back on track? They got this. They're not going to let us down only to get to the end of season seven and realize that you had been led into a cold endless abyss of disappointment and confusion. Some of you may be thinking, well, I never watched it, but now I'm kind of curious. Friend, no. You are favored among men. And the Lord your God is with you. Because loss taught us something very important. There is nothing worse than a bad ending. The book of Acts can kind of feel that way. Our passage this morning is the final words of Acts. But they're also the final words of the historical narrative books of the Bible. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you take out the New Testament letters, this is how the narrative of the Bible ends. It's the end of the story that we're given. And Acts starts off with such a bang. In the first three chapters, you have Jesus commissioning the church, ascending into heaven. Then you have Pentecost. 3,000 people come to Christ in a single day. People being added to their number daily. God moving in extraordinary fashion through miracles and mighty acts as the gospel is radically changing people's lives. And it all feels so significant and captivating. But then you come to the end, Acts 28, and it's hardly climactic. Paul had been arrested, carried off to Rome to stand trial before Caesar, living under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier 24-7, and he preached to the Jews, and they rejected him. Roll the credits. And you're like, that's it? Is there another chapter? Is there another season? It ends so abruptly. We're not given what happens next. We're not told about what happens to Paul. And we're not given that sense of resolution that we want. And the ending doesn't seem to match the hope and the promise of the beginning. And I'll admit that I much prefer an ending where Paul was 
marched out in shackles into the arena of the Colosseum before all the unbelieving masses booing and taunting him. He makes his way up the gallows, and just before the blade falls, Paul yells out, Freedom! And then Caesar's converted, and the crowd bows, and on their knees they offer their lives to Jesus. Let's throw an explosion in there, somewhere in the background, as everybody lifts their hands and sings the doxology together. That would be an ending. But it's not the ending we're given, is it? Why? It's because Luke isn't trying to give us a Hollywood ending. He's teaching us how to end well. He isn't trying to bring all of this to this climactic moment. He wants to present you with a question. Do you see what God is doing? And do you want to be a part of it? If you found out tomorrow, or if you found out right now, that your life was going to end tomorrow, how would you spend the rest of the time that you had? How would you meet your end? The urgency of your situation would no doubt reduce your life down to its most precious ingredients. You'd leave here saying goodbye one last time to all of us final embraces, final words. You'd spend the day surrounded by your kids, calling them if they're grown, watching them sleep if they're little. Maybe you'd stay up all night talking with your spouse about the memories of a life together. How would you meet your end? Now, what if you were given a little more time say, a year. You had one year from this date, and your life would end. Well, already, immediately, that feels quite a bit different, doesn't it? You probably get a lot less annoyed about traffic and all the simple inconveniences of life. You probably wouldn't worry as much about what people thought of you. Maybe you'd think long and hard about telling off your boss finally and peeling out of the parking lot at work. But just adding that additional time kicks our sense of wanting to live life to the fullest into high gear. So maybe we think about going on that vacation that we've always talked about, or traveling the world, finally swimming in the ocean. You'd meet up with all those old friends and you'd visit old places one last time or new places for the first time. And of course, you'd try to cram in as much life into those 12 months as you possibly could, doing things you've never done, experiencing things you've always wanted, trying to check off as many boxes on that bucket list as you possibly could. But do you see what just happened? Do you see how we start to think when all we do is just add a little bit more time? Do you see how we fill it up with our own self-fulfillment? With all the experiences and pleasures and joys that we could squeeze in? By just 
adding a little more time to this scenario, we instantly move to living as the main character. So then how do you think we'd live if we thought that we had all the time in the world? The Bible tells us from the very beginning in the garden that our greatest problem is when we live as the main character. It's as natural to us as breathing. Where God is so quickly forgotten and he's placed on the back burner for how we view and understand our lives and we start to seek fulfillment and satisfaction on our own terms. And what God says will bring life is so quickly laid to the side and we go our own way. It's the problem that's buried underneath every story in this book. And so if all we had left was a year, we don't really envision life the way God says that we will find it. So we don't think about how not having much time left might finally be what gives us the courage to tell our neighbor about Jesus. Or the urgency to tell our kids about Jesus every day because we don't have much time. Or how we would want to love and serve our spouse with a Christ-like, self-giving love because we have wasted so much time. Or I don't want to miss a single Sunday so that I can hear the singing voices of my church family and be reminded of what heaven will sound like. Or I want to take the Lord's Supper every single week, knowing that very soon I will eat it in full with Jesus, and I need his grace to the very end. I want to go out by pouring myself out as one who was bought and paid for, as one who is not their own but belongs body and soul to Jesus Christ. I want to meet my end like Jesus. How much does his story really shape how you think of your own? Maybe those things don't really come to mind because we don't really believe that living like Jesus in the values of his kingdom really is the good life. Loving my neighbor as myself, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, building a life of devotion and service. Considering others more important than myself, giving, not receiving, living sacrificially inside his community. We can view all those like they're just negotiable parts of the faith that we can otherwise overlook because we think that we are okay because we, quote unquote, believe that Jesus died for my sins. And we can settle into a lifeless nominal faith where we say that we believe in Jesus, but we don't really trust in his words. That when you lose yourself, only then will you find yourself. That when you let go of your life, that's when you will actually find life itself. This king and his kingdom are violent to our impulse for self-fulfillment. And this whole story that we've covered over this last year, this whole story of redemption, is it not simply one where God continues to invite his people back into his story, back into what he is doing in this world to make all things new, back 
into real life. And poetically enough, Acts comes to a close just like Genesis begins. After all this time, it really does just come down to a simple question that still remains. Do you see what God is doing? And do you want to be a part of it? And Luke is teaching us what it means to end well. By helping us look beyond our own stories and see what God is doing. And the way that he actually does it is by offering us a warning. He leaves us with this confrontation between Paul and these Jews living in Rome. Paul was in Rome because he got arrested. To make a long story short, at one point the Jews got so mad at Paul that they tried to kill him. And the Romans stepped in and they arrest Paul because it looked like he was an insurrectionist and that this riot was breaking out and he was at the center of it. And so he's arrested and when Paul's finally brought before the court and the Jews bring their charges, Paul plays an ace of spades. He says, I appeal my case to Caesar. I want to take it to the very top. And since Paul was a Roman citizen, that gave him certain privileges. That meant that he could appeal his case to Caesar, but that was scary because it meant that he had to live with Caesar's verdict without any opportunity for appeal. And so all this meant that Paul got an all-expense-paid trip to Rome in handcuffs. And when he arrived, he called for the Jewish leaders in the city, wanting to lay hold of every opportunity that he had. They'd never met Paul. Paul had never met them. And so they meet, they greet. Paul tells them about his situation. But then he says, I want to tell you why I'm wearing these chains. I want to tell you about the hope of Israel. It's probably a funny thing to hear a guy wearing handcuffs talk about hope. So the Jews say, well, we don't know who you are and we don't know about your situation, but we do know that this religious sect, well, we know that no one speaks well of it, but we're willing to hear more. So they set a day to talk about it, and the Jewish leaders come back, but this time they brought even more elders and leaders with them. And what does Paul do? He tells them the story. He tells them from morning until evening the story, and he walked them through the Scriptures from beginning to end. Through the same story that we have walked together this past year. They started in the garden and then they entered into the exile of this broken world. They went into the ark with Noah and they were scattered with the nations at Babel. They followed Abraham from Ur to Canaan and they went up on Mount Moriah with him and with Isaac. They followed the patriarchs and went down into slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and out into the wilderness at Sinai. They crossed the Jordan into the promised land and they walked with the judges and they sat with David and they read the Psalms. 
They watch the temple be constructed and the nations come and marvel. They saw Israel lose her way and be carried off into exile with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They saw the exiles return and rebuild, but only to lay God's purposes aside once again. They listened to the prophets calling Israel to repentance century after century, yet they always turned away. And he finally brought them to Advent, to Good Friday, and to Easter. And they learned about the hope of Israel. Paul showed them Jesus from beginning to end. How this whole story testifies about him and how all of God's promises have been brought to fulfillment in our yes and amen in Jesus Christ and how everything that God is doing is through him. Paul is doing this for the Jews of all people, despite their history, despite their rebellion, because Paul knows that this story is written in grace. He's saying, don't you see what God has done? Don't you see what he's doing? Everything comes down to this. And even now, there is hope. Even now, he would gather you unto himself. Even now, you can still lay hold of all of these promises. And it says, some believe, but others disbelieved. And a disagreement broke out among them. A heated argument. But for all of Paul's belief in God's grace, he also knows the gravity of their situation. And he introduces urgency because he knows they don't have the time. So Paul says very hard words to them from Isaiah 6. He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, to Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Now that is a huge, important passage It's actually quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. It's a lens through which to view this whole story to introduce urgency to all who read it. It's a judgment from Isaiah of how when the Jews hear, they won't understand. They'll see it, but they'll never perceive it. They were, after all, a people that had God in the flesh standing right in front of them, and they crucified him. They missed it. And it's a warning to all who read it. Do not do the same. This judgment from Isaiah hits them hard because Paul is saying, you're just like your fathers who never listened who never understood. Why? Because their hearts were fat. That's literally what the translation means when it says that their hearts have grown dull, that their hearts had grown sluggish and fat. They couldn't receive this God that told them all the way back at Sinai to love him with all of their heart. Why? 
because their hearts were gorged with so many other loves for so many other things. So that when God finally comes to them, there's no room for him. Because they wanted to hold on to their own expectations, their own standards, their own desires, their own hopes, their own ways of living, their own systems of self-righteousness, and their own religious indulgence. They weren't interested in a God that didn't want what they wanted and required a different life than what they wanted to live. They wanted to be first, not last. And they were unimpressed by a God that didn't make them the main character. They didn't want to enter into what God was doing in the world because they were unmoved by this kingdom that was so violent to their own self-fulfillment and satisfaction. And Paul's final words to them was the last call. He said, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent out to the Gentiles. God is going out, and they will listen. He's saying, brothers, know this, that God has come to you. His grace is before you. But make no mistake, God will move on. God will move on. And that was it. That's all they needed to hear. They got up. They walked out. And God moved on. Luke ends Acts by giving us a microcosm of what this whole story is about and boils everything down that we have seen. How this isn't just a story that you learn, this is a story that you live. Israel and the Jews stand as a perpetual warning to us. It's not enough to just know the story. Paul walked them through the Old Testament story that they knew backwards and forwards, had probably massive chunks of it memorized verbatim. They'd been catechized in it from their youth. Yet it's not enough to simply know the story. It's about whether or not you will give yourself to the one this story is about. Does his story change anything about yours? Because you can know this story backwards and forwards and yet still live like you are the main character. And here we are at the end of this series, having done what Paul did with the Jews. We've walked through this story, looking for Jesus in every moment and on every page. You've seen the purpose of all creation, the reason why you were made the great reality of your existence. Yet the danger is that even after all of that, just like these Jews, you are still unmoved by Jesus. Uncompelled to offer more of your life to him so that you may be found in him. And these Jews stand as a warning of how grace can come to us, yet we don't understand it. We don't perceive it. Why? 
Because like theirs, our hearts have grown fat and sluggish, and they are gorged with so many other loves for so many other things. Things we aren't willing to let go of, things we're hoping will work out, things we are hoping that will finally satisfy and fulfill. And when that grace comes to us, there's no room for him. In the congestion of our own hearts. And these Jews remind us that, friends, we do not have the time. They remind us to not take that grace for granted or assume that that grace will be there tomorrow. Because this spirit is like the wind. It comes and goes as it pleases. And God moves on. And we can disregard that grace and live as though we have all the time in the world. So don't think you'll address that sin issue later on. Don't ignore that conviction that you feel. Because the scariest thing is if one day you no longer feel it. Don't think you'll start taking your spiritual life seriously when life slows down. Or when the kids get out of this phase. Or when you finally get promoted and make partner. Don't think you're safe because you were raised in church and you know the stories. Don't think you're okay simply because you have conservative values. Don't think you're safe because you're not as bad as all of those other people and you've done enough good. And do not assume that you have the time because God moves on. And he is going out into this world to put this world to the same question as you and me, looking for all of those who will listen, who will submit their lives to he who is life itself. His grace has come to you. So do not lay hold of it tomorrow. Lay hold of it today. Do not fit Jesus into your life. You fit your life into Jesus. You know who the one person was that wasn't disappointed with the way Acts ends? Paul. It says he stayed in these chains two whole years. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And Luke doesn't tell us how Paul came to his end, but he certainly tells us how he met it. He met his end in the same way that he lived, devoting his life to Christ and to his kingdom. So if Luke is teaching us what it means to end well, does this mean that we're supposed to live like Paul? No. He's not the main character. Luke is telling you to live for Jesus. The same Jesus that Paul wrote about in this prison while wearing these chains when he told the Philippians that Christ would be honored by his life or by his death, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that everything that he'd lost in his life was nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him. The same Jesus that gave Paul hope while wearing these handcuffs. The same Jesus that met him on that Damascus road and rewrote his story. The same Jesus that walked out of the grave and climbed onto a cross and entered into this world by a manger. 
The same Jesus spoken of by the prophets and written of in the Psalms. The same Jesus that sat down with David on his throne who spoke to Moses at Sinai and parted the Red Sea. The same Jesus who followed Joseph down to Egypt and met Abraham and Isaac on the mountaintop. The same Jesus who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. And the same Jesus who has come down to you. Because God moved on. And strangely enough, Acts comes to an end in the same way the Genesis begins with the Spirit of God going out into this world, hovering over the chaos and bringing forth new life. Do you see what God is doing? And do you want to be a part of it? For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would allow us to feel a sense of urgency to our faith. The way that you would leave us here in the book of Acts with this question of life and death before us. We ask that we would cling to your grace. We ask that we wouldn't let another day go by. We ask that we would be quick to confess our sins. We ask that we would be quick to see all the ways that we need you in every corner as the foundation of our lives. You are life itself. You are the hope of our hearts, our strength, and our portion forever. You wrote this story by your grace, and we ask that you would bind us up in it. That all of our days would be those that we would offer unto you. We ask that you would open our ears and open our eyes. Open our lips. And we ask that you would keep us safe until the very end. We ask that you would stir us. We ask that you would meet us and feed us at your table. We ask all this in your precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.